Our reading this evening is taken from Ezekiel chapter 37, reading from verse 1 through to verse 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you will live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord." So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh laid, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 37, um, it's a wonderful sunny day. Let me just bring the mood down a bit by asking you a question. Um, I wonder... 
If any of you have experienced, maybe even this week, just a feeling of real hopelessness, a feeling of complete hopelessness. It seems to be uh, all over the place in our nation. It could be that the, the political climate, climate in our country makes you feel hopeless, or it could be that you are maybe a supporter of our national football team, and you witnessed that devastation two weeks ago. If we'd just held on to the ball for two more minutes, we could have beat the English. Um, Or perhaps you felt hopelessness in much more serious situations, moments where it seems that your whole world is just crushing you down, moments where you feel helpless and, and lost and you just feel that there's nothing you can do about it and you ask yourself, what's the point? I think there's perhaps maybe a misconception that if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be feeling like that. But the truth is that if you live passionately and boldly for Jesus, you will feel that. It's hard to be hopeful when you look at the church in our nation. It's hard to be hopeful when you see people who said they followed Jesus but walked away from the gospel. It's hard to be hopeful when you feel so broken by your own sin or or when you try so hard to tell people about Jesus but they just don't care. It's hard to be hopeful when you're suffering. It's hard to be hopeful when you're confronted with the most hopeless situation of all, the bleak reality of death. And those are real situations. Many of you have been there. Many of you are maybe even still there. And while some of you may not be there, The truth is that if you live long enough and if you are seeking to make Jesus known and to live passionately and boldly for him, you will experience that. You will feel that. To be honest, this is very much what I was feeling at the start of this week. I think to a degree that I hadn't ever felt before. We were just asking questions like, what's the point? It seems so hopeless. Sometimes the situation does look bleak, but... In God's providence, I had to write a sermon on Ezekiel 37. And this passage here was written when God's people lived in a time of real hopelessness. But God speaks through Ezekiel and shows him a vision that is designed to instill hope. That's the purpose of tonight. That we will leave here with with a real, unshakable, confident hope. A hope that is certain because it is rooted in the commitment of God to keep his promises. And God always does what he says. So what I want to do this evening is I want to look at this passage um, uh, and just look at what it meant for them then. And then I want to draw out from this three big applications for us today that will help us give us hope in hopeless situations. You'll see I've got an outline there on your service sheet that will help you as we look through this. Firstly then, let's look at Israel's hopeless situation. So in order to understand what's going on in this vision, we need to remind ourselves of the context. What we are reading of here took place around 600 years before Jesus, and at this time God's people were the nation of Israel. They were the people that God had made great promises to. He promised that that they would be the nation that would bless the world. He promised that from them that would come a king who would establish the kingdom of God and rule forever over all the nations. He promised that, that they would be the nation in which he himself would live among them as their God and that they would be the connecting point between God and humanity. These people... Israel, 
They had the promises of God that would save the world. But during the time that Ezekiel prophesies, the time that this book was written, it's a time of real crisis for Israel. You see, despite God's promises to them, these people had rebelled against God. They had done some wicked, abominable thing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And so God eventually judged them. He did so by, first of all, wiping out their northern kingdom. And then in 592 BC, he sent the mighty Babylonian empire to Israel's capital city, Jerusalem. And the Babylonians came. They sacked the city. They took off most of its residents as prisoners into exile in Babylon and left a handful of people behind in Jerusalem. Now, Ezekiel was one of those prisoners. So as he prophesied, this book is, is written to people who, like him, are prisoners in Babylon. Uh, and Ezekiel's message to them was not, to begin with, a message of hope. You see, these people thought that as long as Jerusalem was still standing and there was still a remnant in Jerusalem, then God's promises to, that they, he made to them would still be standing. But Ezekiel has been preaching, God has been speaking through Ezekiel to say, that's not the case. I am going to wipe out Jerusalem completely, and I'm going to destroy my temple. And so for years and years, Ezekiel preached a message of judgment, a message of doom. And then the turning point comes in the entire book in chapter 33. We saw that last week when a messenger comes to Ezekiel uh, from Jerusalem and says, it's gone. The city has fallen. And all that's left now of this chosen people of God are a pathetic bunch of prisoners living in a shanty town by the rivers of Babylon. No city, no land, no king, no temple, no assurance of God's presence, and absolutely no hope. They've lost everything. But in chapters 34 to 48 of Ezekiel, God has been speaking to them to show how he is going to restore them and how he is going to keep those promises to a degree infinitely greater than when he first made them. Ezekiel has been speaking now great messages of hope instead of judgment. And I don't think that there's any more hopeful message in these chapters than what we see in this vision here in Ezekiel 37. Now, it doesn't begin very hopeful. In fact, it begins with quite a horrible picture. Verse 1, look at what happens. Ezekiel is transported in a vision by the Spirit of God to a valley of death. Now, let's picture in your mind what this would be like. Let's try and uh, get into Ezekiel's head. Let's view this through Ezekiel's eyes for a moment. This would have been absolutely horrifying. So picture in your mind's eye a great big valley As far as the eye can see, there are bones everywhere over the floor of this valley. Like like the aftermath of some incredible mass genocide. Bones everywhere. And Ezekiel is standing in the middle of it. And as he walks through it, he would have have heard the crunch of these bones beneath his feet. A a skull, a ribcage, a femur, litter in the valley. And it's shocking. And God says to Ezekiel, walk with me through this valley. Walk through these bones. Look at what he says about the bones, verse 2. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. Bones everywhere. 
And the fact that they're, they're dry, that he, he brings that out, implies that these bones have been dead for a long, long time. Now, what is this vision trying to convey? What is, this, what is God conveying to his people through this vision? Well, we don't have to look very far for an answer because 1 to 10, verses 1 to 10, we've got the vision itself, but in verses 11 to 14, God explains what the vision means. So, verse 11, he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. This vision is a picture of Israel. It's a picture of these exiles that, that Ezekiel is speaking to, that he's been preaching to. This is what they are like after God's judgment. The image of the dry bones conveys not so much physical death, because most of them would be uh, the exiles were alive, but spiritual death. Not only that, it's a popular Hebrew image to describe being, being utterly spent and bereft of hope. So Proverbs 17 verse 22 says this, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. They have nothing. They have been cut off from God. This is the lowest point in their history. I mean, look at what they're crying out in verse 11. Look at that cry. <laughs> Do you realize how low you'd have to be at the point where you say, my bones are dried up. I have no hope. They are dead. And their hopelessness is as sure and black as death itself. But mercifully, the God of Israel and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is big into the business of resurrection. And that's where the hope comes. That's the second thing we see, God's hope-filled solution. So let's keep looking with Ezekiel. Let, let's, let's stand with him a bit longer in this valley of death to see what happens. As Ezekiel is led around these dry bones, he hears God speak to him and say this, verse 4. Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel's told by God, I want you to, to speak, I want you to preach to these dead bones. Talk about, that's a tough gig. That is a tough preaching gig. I mean, sometimes when we stand up the front here, we can see some of you are dozing, and you think that we can't, but we can. But this is a tough gig. They're all literally dead, and they've been dead for a long, long time. God says, preach to those bones. Prophesy to those bones. Speak the word of God to those bones. And then something amazing happens. The bones start to move. Hundreds of thousands of bones start to rattle. And if you've ever heard the sound of rattling bones, well, I hope <laughs> I hope you've not heard the sound of rattling bones. Actually, um, come see me afterwards. 
but this is what Ezekiel heard. In fact, the word for rattle in there is a Hebrew word that means earthquake. This kind of deafening noise as all these bones are suddenly flying together and forming the outline of a skeleton as Ezekiel continually and keeps preaching and prophesying the word of God. And, and a skeleton starts to appear and then he's still preaching, he's still prophesying. The sinews start to appear, then the muscle and the flesh and then skin starts to appear around what looks to be like a human being. And, and there's loads of them standing there in front of them. It's incredible. I have no idea. What, in my head, it's kind of like, this is maybe shows something about me, but in my head, I don't know if you've ever seen that scene in Indiana Jones where that Nazi guy looks at the Ark of the Covenant and then his face melts off. Well, it's like that, but in reverse. And before long, Ezekiel's got this massive army of people standing in front of him. But they're still not quite alive because they need breath. Now, the word for breath used there in verse 9, it's a Hebrew word, ruach, and it's the word that also means spirit or wind in Hebrew. So these people need God's spirit. They need his ruach. They need his breath to make them alive. And it's not that Ezekiel stops prophesying. All throughout this, he is continually speaking the word of God. And then they do come to life. That's why in verse 14, God speaks of making his people alive by his Holy Spirit. And notice as well that God's Spirit comes into these bodies through his word. God's Spirit makes these bones live as Ezekiel preaches the word of God. And I think it's meant to conjure up in the minds of the original hearers of this vision images of Genesis 2, a passage they would have known well, when way back at the beginning of the Bible, when God first created Adam, what did he do? He formed the man first, and then he breathed his spirit into the man and gave him life. And what's happening here is almost like a a recreation. It's a new humanity being formed out of this remnant of exiles in Israel. Now, the purpose of this vision for the original hearers is that they would have hope. They know that the reason they're in the mess that they're in is because of who they are, because of what they've done. So what God promises here is a complete change of them, a complete remaking, renewal of Israel. They can't do anything. They're as useless and they're as dead to God as a skeleton. But God is going to do something to them. He's going to give them new life. And he's going to reside in his people by his spirit. And he's going to make a new restored humanity that will never more be under his judgment. And we know, and I think that they definitely knew, that this vision, and I bet they held on to this for a long time in their exile. And they held on to it when they left their exile because they did go back to the land. But I bet they knew that the promise of this vision was not fulfilled when they went back to the land of Israel. Because when they went back to the land, they got caught up in their old habits. This is something greater that God is promising in this vision. A promise that was fulfilled 600 years later when Jesus, God himself, came to us in the flesh. And he came to make this possible not just for Israel, but for the entire world. Because it's Jesus who can give us God's spirit. It's Jesus who can make us alive to God, and it's Jesus that can make us alive for eternity. It's Jesus who literally rose from the grave to show that he has power 
to completely restore and fix us. So this promise, this vision, is for us today. And so for the remainder of our time, I want you to look at the promise of the hope in this vision and see how we see that if you're a follower of Jesus. And if you're not, I hope you'll see, I hope you'll see why the gospel of Jesus, the good news, gives us a hope that is not flimsy or wishful, but is real and eternal and something that you desperately need. How does it give us hope? Firstly, it gives us hope for holiness or hope that God will renew us. The picture of Israel is a valley of dead bones. It's not just a picture for them, but it's a picture for us here today. This is a picture of you without Jesus. A picture of the natural human heart. We are dead to God. Dead in the sense that that we have no desire to follow him. We give no thought to him. We do not want to listen to him. We care only about serving and exalting ourselves rather than our creator. We take what we know to be true about him and we willfully suppress that truth. And that's everyone. We are a world in rebellion against God, and therefore we are under the judgment of God. As the Apostle Paul says in in that passage that Robin read to us from Ephesians 2, we are dead in our sins and our transgressions. Do you see that? That's unbelievable. We are dead. There's not one even tiny bit of us that has an inkling for God or his gospel. We cannot get out of that hopeless state any more than a dead body can will themselves back to life. It's impossible. But Jesus came to do the impossible. And he does it by, first of all, taking the punishment for our sins. That's what he did on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, suffered the judgment that our wrongdoing, our rebellion deserves. That's why Christians celebrate his death. It's the the beginning of this process of, of making us new forgiveness. But Jesus didn't just die to bring forgiveness. He died to to make us alive to God, to unite us to God, to, to have us adopted by God as his children. And so if you trust in Jesus' death for your forgiveness, he promises that he will and he has given you his Holy Spirit, his Ruach. God himself comes and lives in you. You are now a new creation. You have what Jesus calls new birth. By God's spirit, we are now united to Jesus and united to God. That's why what Paul says later on in, in that passage in Ephesians 2 is that we were dead in our sins and transgressions, but God made us alive in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be alive to God to be alive in Christ. What does that look like? What does it look like to have God's Spirit? How, how do I know that's me? Well, I think in Ezekiel 37, there's one big defining trait. Let's see if you can see it in verse 6, verse 13, and verse 14. Do you see the repeat, repeated phrase? What's going to happen in this restoration? What's going to happen to these people? Then you will know that I am the Lord. you're alive to God, you know him. I don't just mean intellectually or in a kind of distant way, but you know him like a king and a father. You know him intimately. You know him affectionately. 
You know his grace. You know his mercy. You know what he's done for you. You, you are enamored with his character. You, you desire to obey his commands and to fight off sin so you can follow him. You love him because you know him. That's what it's like to be alive. That's what happens when you've undergone this radical transformation from death to life. See how amazing it is to be a Christian. It's not adopting a philosophy or an idea. It's about life to the full. It's about knowing our creator. That's what Ezekiel is seeing happening here in this valley. So if you struggle against sin, and we all do, you need to remember who you are and what's happened to you. We who were cut off have been brought in. We who had no hope have been given a new hope. We who were as dead as dried bones have had God's Spirit breathed into our lives. And the the amazing thing about that is that when God starts to do this process of restoration in our lives, He finishes it. He doesn't leave a half-finished job. When God works in us, He will see that work through to the end. You have the Spirit of God. And so therefore, we need to walk in step with that Spirit. Walk in step with this renewal that He's doing in us. How do I do that? Well, what do we see in Ezekiel? How does the Spirit work? How does the Spirit give new life? Through the Word of God. The Word of God and and the Holy Spirit, they always go hand in hand together in the Bible. We shouldn't separate them. That's how God speaks to us. We become Christians through hearing God's Word and responding to it. And we keep going as Christians. We keep changing. We keep being renewed through listening to the Word of God and knowing God better through that Word. We are not slaves to sin. If you've been made alive with Christ, you are not a slave to your sin. You're a child of God. God has made us alive and we just need to listen to Him and keep fighting. Keep fighting. Secondly, this passage gives us real hope for evangelism. This is the thing that I think that's maybe struck out for me most this week. If what we've been saying is true, then you and I um, did not become Christians because we were brought up to be Christians or because someone persuaded us that the gospel was true. That's not how you became a Christian. Now, that might have been factors in your conversion that God used, but that is not the fundamental reason that you came to follow Jesus. We were made alive to God because God himself intervened. It wasn't that somehow our our personalities were more disposed towards belief in Jesus. We're dead. We're all dead. It was utterly impossible for us without God's Spirit to have any sort of desire for Him. And therefore, when it comes to people responding to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ, there is no one who is too far gone. I mean, you can't be more dead. You're either dead or alive. Some of you may be thinking, well, I understand but you've not been to my office. You've not seen my staff room, how hostile they are to the gospel. You don't realize how difficult it is for me in the playground when nobody believes. You've not met my family. They are so hard. 
Some of you are in those situations where it does, doesn't it feel hopeless? Can God change them and bring them back to Christ? Can the thousands and thousands of people right now who are out on the doorstep of Morningside who couldn't give two hoots about Jesus, can they be saved? All of them? Uh, Let me rephrase the question. Can these bones live? That's the question God asks Ezekiel in verse 3. Can these bones live? Can these people be saved? Humanly speaking, the answer is no. But I love Ezekiel's response. He he doesn't say no, does he? Nor does he presume that God will. He doesn't say yes either. He, He just kind of throws the ball back into God's court. And he leans on God's sovereignty. And he says, you, O Lord God, you know whether these bones can live or not. You know, the problem, I think, is it's not that we view evangelism as too hard. It's that we don't view it as hard enough. Evangelism is not hard. It's impossible. Of course it's hard in the staff room, in the classroom. Of course it's hard when you're speaking to people out there. They're dead. When you do evangelism, it's like, it's like going into a graveyard and going around the graves and yelling at them, come to life, come to life. It's impossible, humanly speaking. But the Holy Spirit's job is also to do the impossible. And if you trust in yourself when you're thinking about sharing the gospel with others and you think it's about you and your rhetoric and how well read you are and it's all about you and what you do and what you say and how you say it, if you make it all about you, it will crush you in despair. But we don't trust in ourselves. We trust in the life-giving, life-changing power of God's Spirit. And when we go out and tell others about Jesus, we don't do it alone, but we do it with the power and the authority of the God who dwells in us by His Spirit. The very fact that you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, is a testimony to the fact that God can change anyone's heart. And He's always with us in mission. The Spirit is always with us on mission. The Spirit of God is more passionate about the glory of Jesus than we could ever be. You know, it's an interesting passage in the New Testament in John chapter 20, and I never understood it until I read Ezekiel 37. And it's after the resurrection of Jesus, where some of you may be familiar with the passage. Jesus, uh, he's been risen to new life. He's completed his mission for the forgiveness of sins, and he gathers his disciples together, and he does something really odd. He breathes on them. He gathers them together and he breathes on all his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. But do you see what he's doing in this, after this chapter? It's marking the, the new beginning, the recreation of humanity. It's Genesis 2, it's Ezekiel 37. It's Jesus breathing new life into his disciples because his mission of forgiveness has been achieved. And, and with the Holy Spirit now, they are called to go to the ends of the earth. And the words that they spoke were the words of God because they went with the authority of the Spirit of God. Their testimony is how the the Holy Spirit will convict the world, which is why immediately after that event, John writes this in his gospel. I wrote this, says John. I wrote it so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life. When we go out and share the Word of God, it brings life. Life. 
to a dead world. The witness of the apostles, the testimony of the prophets in the Old Testament, the Bible, the Word of God. That doesn't mean that evangelism is me just throwing Bible verses left, right, and center. But it does mean that everything I do, everything I know about God is shaped by the Bible. Everything I proclaim about God is shaped by the Word of God. It means that the most effective thing we can do for people is sit down and read the Bible with them. Because it's life that's found in this Word. It's living. It's active. It's not text. Can these bones live? Can you plant a church on the south side of the city? Can you reach the people outside that door in your workplace or in your family or wherever it is? Can these bones live? Don't dare tell God that they can. Speak to them about Jesus. Make every effort you can. Don't tell God they can't live. You never know what may happen. You, O Lord, Lord, know. Thirdly, just last point of application. Actually, just one thing. It's not on your service sheet, but I think it's here in this passage as well. This passage really gives us hope for the church and our country, doesn't it? These people are in a mess because they rebelled against God's word. The church in this nation is in a mess. It's rebelled against God's word. But there is still lots of hope. Not in churches or denominations where they turn their back on the word of God. There's no life there. But where the word of God is proclaimed and preached, there is hope for this nation. That's a great thing. Thirdly then, last point of application, it does give us hope in the face of death. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, if we have hope in Christ only for this life, then we are to be pitied more than anyone else. It was great to hear of the conversion of Agnes and her funeral that's just passed. But imagine we just said to Agnes that the hope of the gospel was for the last few days that she had in her life. She would need to be pitied more than anyone else. And it's not true. Because the God that we worship has defeated death. And the hope that we have is eternal. It's not just spiritual resurrection, I think, that's talking about here in Ezekiel. I think what we're seeing here is a a prophecy for the physical resurrection of all followers of Jesus. And I think that it's here, when you look at verse 12, have have a read of that. Notice how the language changes now. We're not in the valley anymore in verse 12. Verse 12, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Christianity is all about resurrection. It's the the, the linchpin of all Christian hope is the fact that that Jesus physically rose from the grave three days after his death. It, It wasn't a metaphor. It wasn't just a spiritual resurrection. It's a real physical resurrection coming back from life. And it's the linchpin of all our hope because the most hopeless thing that we can face in life is death. He is the death conqueror. He is the spirit giver, the word of God. He is the resurrection and the life. And because he died and because he rose again, the spirit of God rose him to new life. It means that the same will happen to us. 
that we will be risen to a life of complete restoration with no evil in our hearts, with nothing that will hinder us from enjoying God, with, with no threats of danger, no, nothing to, to stop us loving God. Perfect love and peace and eternal security. No disease, no sin, no wickedness, no suffering, and no more death. That's the eternal, unshakable hope of the gospel that Agnes had. And that we could joyfully, though with tears, talk about at her funeral. Death does not have the final word for those who follow Christ. Jesus has removed its sting. He has flipped it on its head. He has taken the curse of mankind and used it as the gateway to paradise. Let me close just by saying this very briefly. If you are a follower of Jesus, you too are in exile. You're in exile. We're waiting for our heavenly home. This world here is not our home. It's not the home of God's new humanity. But as we struggle with with doubt and with confusion, as we struggle with pain and suffering, there is one thing that we can be absolutely sure of. And it's right at the end of this passage in verse 14. When God says something, he does it. When God says, if we follow Jesus, we will be forgiven, we will be forgiven. When God says, he will change us, he will change us. When God says, He will work through us. Even in moments where it feels like he's not working. He will do it. When God says that his gospel will go out to all the nations, it will go out to all the nations. There was a time when when people looked at the country of China and thought, no way is the gospel going to spread there. It's the fastest growing church in the world. When God says he will raise us out of the grave to a new life and a new creation, he will do it. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Let me pray. Father, what hope we have in the gospel. Hope in you, not in ourselves. Thank goodness that we don't have to look to us. We sin, we rebel. Our faithfulness to you is sometimes so frail. Thank goodness we don't have to rely upon our ability to articulate the gospel well or to speak great words of apologetics. Thank goodness we don't have to convince people. Father, we praise you that it's all of you. It's all of your Holy Spirit. We're dead. We're, we're nothing. We're just bones in your eyes. But we praise you that Jesus has made us alive. That we are no longer dead in our sins and transgressions. We have been raised with Christ. We have gone from the depths of hopelessness to the the heights of joy. We have so much. We are your children. We've been adopted in your family. We have your Holy Spirit. We are your temple. Oh, Father, how the exiles longed for what we have how they longed to see how this promise was going to be fulfilled, and we've seen it. And yet, Father, we know that that it's easy still to feel hopeless because the world is still broken, and we are waiting. We are not home. We are waiting for the new creation, for the time when you will fix all things, and you will fix us. 
So, Father, help us to hold on to the hope that we have in the gospel. Give us the passion and the zeal for evangelism to go out. Help us not to say in our hearts that these bones will never live. We know that you can make them live. And so give us the power and the, the trust in you to tell others about Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.